Welcome back, readers and listeners. Thank you for joining me. We are going to be rolling along today with two chapters in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, starting with chapter 34. When Francie heard Aunt Sissy tell Mama that she was going to get a baby, she wondered why Sissy didn't say, have a baby, like other women said. She found out there was a reason why Sissy said get instead of have. Sissy had had three husbands. There were ten tiny headstones in a small plot in St. John's Cemetery in Cypress Hills belonging to Sissy. And on each stone, the date of death was the same as the date of birth. Sissy was 35 now and desperate about not having children. Katie and Johnny often talked it over and Katie was afraid that Sissy would kidnap a child someday. Sissy wanted to adopt a child, but her John wouldn't hear of it. I'll not support another man's bastard, see, was his way of putting it. Don't you like children, lover? she asked, wheedlingly. Sure I like children, but they gotta be my own and not some other bums, he answered, unintentionally insulting himself. In most things, her John was like soft dough in Sissy's hands, but in this one thing he refused to allow himself to be needed her way. If there was to be a child, he kept insisting, it would have to be his and no other man's. Sissy knew he meant it. She even had a kind of respect for his attitude, but she had to have a living baby. By chance, Sissy found out that a beautiful 16-year-old girl out in Mazpeth had gotten into trouble with a married man and was going to have a baby. Her parents, Sicilians lately come over from the other side, had shut up the girl in a dark room so that the neighbors could not see her shame increase. Her father kept her on a diet of bread and water. He had a theory that this would weaken her so that she and her child would die in childbirth. Lest the kind-hearted mother feed Lucia during his absence, the father left no money in the house when he went to work in the mornings. He brought a bag full of groceries each night when he returned home and watched that no food was sneaked out and set aside for the girl. After the family had eaten, he gave the girl her daily ration of half a loaf of bread and a jug of water. Sissy was shocked when she heard this story of starvation and cruelty. She thought out a plan. Feeling as they did, she thought the family might be glad to give away the baby when it was born. She decided to have a look at the people. If they seemed normal and healthy, she'd offer to take the baby. The mother wouldn't let her into the house when she called. Sissy came back the next day with a badge pinned to her coat. She knocked on the door. When it was opened a crack, she pointed to the badge and sternly demanded admittance. The frightened mother, 
thinking Sissy was from the immigration department, let her in. The mother could not read, else she would have seen the badge said, Chicken Inspector. Sissy took charge. The mother-to-be was frightened and defiant and also very thin from the starvation diet. Sissy threatened the girl's mother with arrest if she didn't treat the girl better. With many tears and in badly spoken English, the mother told of the disgrace and of the father's plan to starve the girl and the unborn child to death. Sissy had a day-long talk with the mother and Lucia, the daughter. It was mostly in pantomime. At last, Sissy made it understood that she was willing to take the child off their hands as soon as it was born. When the mother understood finally, she covered Sissy's hand with grateful kisses. From that day, Sissy became the adored and trusted friend of the family. After her John left for work in the morning, Sissy cleaned up her flat, cooked a potful of food for Lucia, and took it over to the Italian home. She fed Lucia well on a combination Irish-German diet. She had a theory that if the child absorbed such food before birth, it wouldn't be so much of an Italian. Sissy took good care of Lucia. On nice days, she took her out to the park and made her sit in the sun. During the time of their unusual relationship, Sissy was a devoted friend and a gay companion to the girl. Lucia adored Sissy, who was the only one in this new world who had treated her kindly. The whole family, except the father, who didn't know of her existence, loved Sissy. The mother and the other children gladly entered into a conspiracy to keep the father in ignorance. They locked Lucia up in her dark room again when they heard the father's step on the stairs. The family couldn't speak much English, and Sissy knew no Italian, but as the months passed, they learned some English from her, and she learned Italian from them, and they were able to talk together. Sissy never told her name, so they called her Statch Libti, after the lady with the torch, which had been the first thing they saw of America. Sissy took over Lucia, her unborn child, and the family. When everything was settled and agreed upon, Sissy announced to her friends and family that she was starting another baby. No one paid any attention. Sissy was always starting babies. She found an obscure midwife and paid her in in advance for the delivery. She gave her a paper on which she had asked Katie to write her name, her John's name, and Sissy's maiden name. She told the midwife that the paper was to be turned over to the Board of Health immediately after the birth. The ignorant woman, who could not speak Italian, Sissy had made sure of that when she hired her, assumed that the names handed to her were the names of the mother and father. Sissy wanted the birth certificate to be in order. Sissy was so realistic about her pregnancy by proxy that she simulated morning sickness in the beginning weeks. When Lucia announced that she felt fine, Sissy told her husband that she felt fine. When Lucia announced that she felt life, Sissy told her husband that she 
felt life. On the afternoon that Lucia's labor pains started, Sissy went home and got into bed. When her John came home from work, she told him the baby was starting to come. He looked at her. She was as trim as a ballet dancer. He argued, but she was so insistent that he went and got her mother. Mary Romilly looked at Sissy and said she couldn't possibly be having a baby. For answer, Sissy let out a blood-curdling yell and said that her pains were killing her. Mary looked at her thoughtfully. She didn't know what Sissy had in mind, but she did know it was useless to argue with her. If Sissy said she was going to have a baby, she was going to have a baby, and that's all there was to it. Her John protested. But look how skinny she is. There's no baby in that belly, see? Maybe it will come from her head. That's big enough as one may see, said Mary Romilly. Ah, there, don't give such things, said the John. Who are you to say, demanded Sissy. Didn't the Virgin Mary herself get a baby without a man? If she could do it, I'm sure I could do it easier, beings as I'm married and have a man. Who knows, asked Mary. She turned to the harassed husband and spoke gently. There are a lot of things that men don't understand about. She urged the confused man to forget the whole thing, eat a nice supper which she would cook for him, and then go to bed and get a good night's sleep. The puzzled man lay beside his wife throughout the night. He couldn't get a good night's sleep. From time to time, he'd rise on his elbow and stare at her. From time to time, he'd run his hand over her flat stomach. Sissy slept soundly all through the night. When he left for work the next morning, Sissy announced that he'd be a father before he returned that night. I give up, shouted the tormented man as he went off to his work in the pulp magazine house. Sissy rushed over to Lucia's house. The baby had been born just an hour after the father had left. It was a beautiful, healthy girl. Sissy was so happy. She said Lucia would have to nurse the baby for 10 days to give it a start, then she'd take it home. She went out and bought a roasting chicken and a bakery store pie. The mother cooked the chicken Italian style. Sissy trusted a bottle of Chianti wine from the Italian grocer on the block, and they all had a fine dinner. It was like a fiesta in the house. Everybody was happy. Lucia's stomach was almost flat again. There was no longer any monument to her disgrace. Now all was as it had been before, or would be when Sissy took the baby away. Sissy washed the baby every hour. She changed its shirt and band three times during the day. The diapers were changed every five minutes, whether they needed to be or not. She washed Lucia and made her clean and sweet. She brushed and brushed her hair until it glowed like satin. She couldn't do enough for Lucia and the baby. She had to tear herself away when it was time for the father's returning. The father came home and went into the dark room to give Lucia her daily food pittance. He turned up the gas and found a radiant Lucia and a, and a fat, healthy baby sleeping contentedly at her side. 
He was amazed. All this on bread and water? Then fright grew on him. It was a miracle. Surely the Virgin Mary had intervened for the young mother. She had been known to work such miracles in Italy. Maybe he would be punished for treating his flesh and blood so inhumanely. Contrite, he brought her a plate heaped with spaghetti. Lucia declined it, saying she had grown used to bread and water. The mother sided with Lucia and explained that the bread and water had formed the perfect baby. More and more, the father believed a miracle had come about. Frantically, he tried to be nice to Lucia, but the family were punishing him. They wouldn't permit him to show any kindness to his daughter. Sissy was lying peacefully in bed when her John came home that evening. Jokingly, he asked, Did you have that baby today? Yes, she said in a weak voice. Aw, go on. It was born an hour after you left this morning. It was not. I swear. He looked around the room. Where is it then? In the incubator at Coney Island. In the where? It was a seven months baby, you know. Only weighed three pounds. That's why I didn't show. You lie, see? As soon as I get my strength back, I'll take you to Coney Island right to the glass case where it is. What are you trying to do? Drive me crazy? I'm going to bring it home in ten days, just as soon as it grows fingernails. She put that in at the spur of the moment. What's gotten into you, sissy? You know goddamned well you didn't have a baby this morning. I had a baby. It weighed three pounds. They took it to the incubator so it wouldn't die, and I'm going to get it back in ten days. I give up. I give up, he shouted, and went out to get drunk. Sissy brought the baby home ten days later. It was a big baby and weighed almost eleven pounds. Her John asserted himself for the last time. It seems mighty big for a ten-year-old baby. You're a mighty big man yourself, lover, she whispered. She saw a pleased look come into his face. She put her arms around him. I'm all right now, she said in his ear, if you want to sleep with me. You know, he said afterwards, it does look a little like me, especially around the ears, murmured Sissy drowsily. The Italian family went back to Italy a few months later. They were glad to go because the new world had brought them nothing but sorrow, poverty, and shame. Sissy never heard of them again. Everybody knew that it wasn't Sissy's baby, that it couldn't be her baby. But she stuck to her story, and since there was no other explanation, people had to accept it. After all, strange things did happen in the world. She christened the child Sarah, but in time, everybody called it Little Sissy. Katie was the only one to whom Sissy told the truth about the origin of the baby. She confided in her when she asked her to write out the names for the birth certificate. 
Ah, but Francie knew too. Often in the night, she had been wakened by the sound of voices and heard Mama and Aunt Sissy talking in the kitchen about the baby. Francie vowed always to keep Sissy's secret. Johnny was the only other person outside of the Italian family who knew, Katie told him. Francie heard them talking about it when they thought she was sound asleep. Papa took the part of Sissy's husband. That's a dirty trick to play on a man, any man. Somebody ought to tell him. I'll tell him. No, said Mama sharply. He's a happy man. Let him be that way. Happy? With another man's child palmed off on him? I don't see it. He's crazy for Sissy. He's always afraid she's going to leave him, and he'd die if she left him. And you know Sissy. She went from one man to another, one husband to another, always trying to get a child. She was on the verge of leaving this one when the baby happened along. Sissy will be a different woman from now on. Mark my words. She'll settle down at last and make him a much better wife than he deserves to have. Who is this John, anyhow, she interrupted herself. She'll be a good mother. The child will be her whole world, and she won't need to be going after the men anymore. So don't monkey around with it, Johnny. You Romilly women are too deep for us men, decided Johnny. A thought struck him. Say, you didn't do that to me, did you? In answer, Katie got the children out of bed. She had them stand before him in their long white nightgowns. Look at them, she commanded. Johnny looked at his son. It was as if he were looking in a trick mirror where he saw himself perfectly, but on a smaller scale. He looked at Francie. There was Katie's face all over again, only more solemn, except for the eyes. They were Johnny's eyes. On an impulse, Francie picked up a plate and held it over her heart the way Johnny held his hat when he sang. She sang one of his songs. They called her frivolous Sal, a peculiar sort of gal. She had Johnny's expressions and Johnny's gestures. I know, I know, Papa whispered. He kissed his children, gave them each a pat on the backside, and told them to go back to bed. After they had gone, Katie pulled Johnny's head down and whispered something to him. No, he said in a surprised voice. Yes, Johnny, she said quietly. He put his hat on. Where are you going, Johnny? Out. Johnny, please don't come home. She looked towards the bedroom door. I won't, Katie, he promised. He kissed her gently and went out. Francie woke in the middle of the night, wondering what had taken her out of sleep. Ah, Papa hadn't come home yet. That was it. She never slept soundly until she knew he had come home. Once awake, she started thinking. She thought of Sissy's baby. She thought of birth. Her thoughts went to birth's corollary. Co corollary? Corollary. Death. 
She didn't want to think of death, how everybody was born but to die. While she was fighting off thoughts of death, they heard Papa coming up the stairs singing softly. She shivered when she heard that he was singing the last verse of Molly Malone. He never sang that verse. Never. Why? She died of a fever and no one could save her. And that's how I lost sweet Molly Malone. Francie didn't stir. It was a rule that when Papa came home late, Mama was to open the door. She didn't want the children to lose their sleep. The song was coming to an end. Mama didn't hear. She wasn't getting up. Francie jumped out of bed. The song was ended before she reached the door. When she opened it, Papa was standing there quietly, his hat in his hand. He was looking straight before him over her head. You won, Papa, she said. Did I? he asked. He walked into the room, not looking at her. You finished the song? Yes, I finished the song, I guess. He sat in the chair by the window. Papa, turn out the light and go back to bed. The light was kept burning low against his return. She turned out the light. Papa, are, are you sick? No, I'm not drunk, he said clearly from the dark. And Francie knew that he spoke the truth. She went to bed and buried her face in the pillow. She did not know why, but she wept. Chapter 35 Once more, it was the week before Christmas. Francie had just had her 14th birthday. Neely, as he put it, was waiting to turn 13 any moment. It looked as though it wouldn't be such a good Christmas. There was something wrong with Johnny. Johnny wasn't drinking. There had been other times, of course, when Johnny stopped drinking, but that was when he was working. Now he wasn't drinking at all, and he wasn't working. And the wrong thing about Johnny was that he wasn't drinking, but he was acting like he was drinking. He hadn't spoken to his family in more than two weeks. Francie remembered the last time Papa had said anything to her was that night when he came home sober, singing the last verse of Molly Malone. Come to think of it, he hadn't sung since that night either. He came and went without speaking. He stayed out late nights and came home sober, and nobody knew where he spent that time. His hands were trembling badly. He could hardly hold the fork when he ate, and suddenly he looked very old. Yesterday, he had come in while they were eating supper. He looked at them as though he was going to say something. Instead of speaking, however, he closed his eyes for a second and then went into the bedroom. He had no regular hours for anything. He came and went at odd hours of the day and night. 
When he came home, he spent the time lying on his bed, fully clothed, with his eyes shut. Katie went about, white and quiet. There was a foreboding about her as though she were carrying a tragedy within herself. Her face was thin, and there were hollows under her cheeks, but her body was fuller. She had taken on an extra job in this week before Christmas. She got up earlier and worked faster at her flat cleaning and was finished in early afternoon. She rushed down to Gorling's, the department store at the Polish end of Grand Street, where she worked from four to seven, serving coffee and sandwiches to the salesgirls who were not allowed to take the time to go out for supper on account of the Christmas rush. Her family desperately needed that 75 cents that she earned each day. It was nearly seven o'clock. Neely had come home from his paper route and Francie was back from the library. There was no fire in the flat. They had to wait until Mama came home with some money with which to buy a bundle of wood. The children wore their coats and zitful caps as it was very cold in the flat. Francie saw that Mama had to had wash on the line and she pulled it in. The garments had frozen into grotesque shapes and didn't want to come in through the window. Here, let me at him, said Neely, referring to a frozen suit of underwear. The legs of the long drawers had frozen in a spread out position and Neely's struggles did no good. I'll break the damn thing's legs, said Francie. She whacked it fiercely and it crackled and collapsed. She pulled it in viciously. She looked like Katie at that moment. Francie, huh? You, you cursed. I know it. God heard you. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yes, he did. He sees and he hears everything. Neely, do you believe that he looks right in this little old room? You betcha he does. Don't you believe it, Neely. He's too busy watching all the little sparrows fall and worrying about whether the little buds will burst into flowers to have time to investigate us. Don't talk like that, Francie. I will so. If he went around looking into people's windows like you say, he'd see how things were here. He'd see that it was cold and there was no food in the house. He'd see that Mama isn't strong enough to work so hard. And he'd see how Papa was and he'd do something about Papa. Yes, he would. Francie. The boy looked around the room uneasily. Francie saw that he was uneasy. I'm getting too big to tease him she thought. Aloud, she said. All right, Neely. They talked about other things until Katie came home. Katie came in with a rush. She had a bundle of wood blocks, which she had bought for two cents, a can of condensed milk, and three bananas in a bag. She stuffed paper and the wood into the range and had a fire going in no time. Well, children, I guess we'll have to have oatmeal for supper tonight. Again, groaned Francie. It won't be so bad, said Mama. We have condensed milk, and I brought bananas to slice on top. Mama, 
ordered Neely. Don't mix any condensed milk with the oatmeal. Let it stay on top. Slice the bananas and cook them with the oatmeal, suggested Francie. I want to eat my banana whole, protested Neely. Mama settled the argument. I'll give you each a banana and you eat it the way that you want. When the oatmeal was cooked, Katie filled two soup plates full, set them on the table, punched two holes in the can of milk, and set a banana by each plate. Aren't you going to eat, Mama? asked Neely. I'll eat after. I'm not hungry now, Katie sighed. Francie said, Mama, if you don't feel like eating, why don't you play the piano so it's like a restaurant while we're eating? It's cold in the front room. Light the oil stove, chorused the children. All right. Katie took a portable oil stove from the cupboard. Only you know I don't play so good. You play grand, Mama, said Francie sincerely. Katie was pleased. She knelt to light the oil stove. What do you want me to play? Come, little leaves, called Francie. Welcome, sweet springtime, shouted Neely. I'll play little leaves first, decided Mama, because I didn't give Francie a birthday present. She went into the cold front room. I think I'll slice my banana on top of my oatmeal. I'll slice it very thin so there's a whole lot of it, said Francie. I'm going to eat mine whole, decided Neely, and slow so that it lasts a long time. Mama was playing Francie's song now. It was one that Mr. Morton had taught the children. She sang to the music. Come, little leaves, said the wind one day. Come o'er the meadows with me and play. Put on your dresses of red and gold. Ah, oh, that's a baby song, interrupted Neely. Francie stopped singing. When Katie finished Francie's song, she started to play Rubenstein's Melody in F. Mr. Morton had taught them that that song, or Mr. Morton had taught them that song too, calling it Welcome Sweet Springtime. Neely started to sing, Welcome, sweet springtime, we greet thee in song. <laughs> His voice changed suddenly from tenor to bass on the high note in song. Francie giggled, and soon Neely was giggling so much that he couldn't sing. You know what Mama would say if she were sitting here now? asked Francie. What? She'd say... Spring will be here before you know it, they laughed. Christmas is coming soon, commented Neely. Remember when we were children, said Francie, who had just finished being 13, how we used to smell if Christmas was coming? Let's see if we can smell it, Neely said impulsively. He opened the window a crack and put his nose to it. Yep. What does it smell like? I smell snow. Remember how, when we were kids, we used to look up at the sky and holler, Feather boy, feather boy, shake down some feathers from the sky. <laughs> and when it snowed, we thought that there was a feather boy up there. 
Let me smell, she asked suddenly. She put her nose to the crack. Yes, I can smell it. It smells like orange peels and Christmas trees put together. They closed the window. I never snitched on you that time you got the doll when you said your name was Mary. No, said Francie gratefully. And I didn't tell on you either the time you made a cigarette out of coffee grounds and when you smoked it, the paper caught fire and fell on your blouse and burned a big hole in it. I helped you hide it. You know, mused Neely, Mama found that blouse and sewed a patch over the hole and she never asked me about it. Mama is funny, said Francie. They pondered a while over their mother's inscrutable ways. The fire was dying down now, but the kitchen was still warm. Neely sat on top of the far end of the stove where it wasn't so hot. Mama had warned him that he'd get piles from sitting on a hot stove, but Neely didn't care. He liked his backside to be warm. The children were almost happy. The kitchen was warm and they were fed, and Mama's playing made them seem safe and comfortable. They reminisced about past Christmases, or, as Francie put it, they talked about olden times. While they were talking, someone pounded on the door. It's Papa, said Francie. No, Papa always sings coming up the stairs, so we know it's him. Neely, Papa hasn't sung coming home since that night. Let me in, shouted Johnny's voice, and he beat on the door as though he would break it down. Mama came running out from the front room. Her eyes looked very dark in her white face. She opened the door. Johnny lunged in. They stared at him. They had never seen Papa looking like that. He was always so neat, and now his tuxedo jacket was dirty, as though he had been lying in the gutter, and his derby hat was bashed in. He didn't own an overcoat or gloves. His cold red hands were trembling. He lunged to the table. No, I'm not drunk, he said. Nobody said, began Katie. At last I'm through with it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. He pounded the table. They knew he was speaking the truth. I haven't touched a drop since that night. He broke off suddenly. But no one would believe me anymore. No one. There, Johnny, said Mama soothingly. What's the matter, Papa? asked Francie. Shh, don't bother your father, said Mama. She spoke to Johnny. There's coffee left from this morning, Johnny. It's nice and hot, and we've got milk tonight. I was waiting until you came home so we could eat together. She poured coffee. We ate already, said Neely. Hush, Mama told him. She put milk into the coffee and sat opposite Johnny. Drink it, Johnny, while it's hot. Johnny stared at the cup. Suddenly, he pushed it from him, and Katie drew a sharp breath as it clattered to the floor. Johnny buried his head in his arms and sobbed shudderingly. Katie went to him. What's the matter, Johnny? What's the matter? She asked soothingly. Finally, he sobbed out. 
They threw me out for the waiters' union today. They said I was a bum and a drunk. They said they'd never give me another job as long as I live. He controlled his sobs for a moment, and his voice was frightened as he said, As long as I live! He wept bitterly. They wanted me to turn in my union button. He put his hand over the tiny green and white button he wore in his lapel. Francie's throat got tight as she remembered how he often said he wore it like an ornament, a rose. He was so proud to be a union man. But I wouldn't give it up, he sobbed. That's nothing, Johnny. You just get a good rest and get on your feet again and they'll be glad to take you in. You're a good waiter and the best singer they've got. I'm no good anymore. I can't sing anymore. Katie, they laugh at me now when I sing. The last few jobs I had, they hired me to give the people a laugh. It's come to that now. I'm finished. He sobbed wildly. He sobbed as though he never could stop. Francie went. Francie wanted to run into the bedroom and hide her head under the pillow. She edged towards the door. Mama saw her. Stay here, she said sharply. She spoke to Papa again. Come, Johnny. Rest a while and you'll feel better. The oil stove is lit and I'll put it in the bedroom and it will be nice and warm. I'll sit with you while you fall asleep. She put her arms around him. Gently, he put her arms away and went into the bedroom alone, sobbing more quietly. Katie spoke to the children. I'm going to stay with Papa for a while. Keep on talking or doing whatever you are doing. The children stared at her numbly. What are you looking at me like that for? Her voice broke. Nothing's the matter. They looked away. She went into the front room to get the oil stove. Francie and Neely did not look at each other for a long time. Finally, he said, Do you want to talk about olden times? No, said Francie.